Thank you, Jesus, that we've been set free. Hallelujah. Thank you for breaking every chain, Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Please take your seats. Well, it's great to see you here this afternoon. And um, we are starting a new series for the next two months. And I um, really do believe it's a very important series that we're going to be looking at at these five o'clock series because we are going to be looking at the subject spiritual warfare. And there behind me, Ephesians 6, we're going to 12, we're going to be li listening to this in a few minutes. For we wrestle not against flesh and dark and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. As I've been preparing for these sessions and the preparation, I suppose, has been going on in my mind for the last couple of months. I've been rereading the scriptures on spiritual warfare, the great Ephesians 6 passage and others. And I've been meditating and reflecting on them. And um, I think I've, 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 I've come to them at a, at, a, at a lot deeper and more mature level than I've ever done before, profoundly so, uh, for me personally. And I am convinced that one of the missing links in where God wants us to go as individuals and as a church is in the dimension of how to deal with the devil and the kingdom of darkness. I'm convinced. And of course, the enemy wants total confusion on this matter. If you can bring total confusion into a battle, you've already won the battle. You get people firing on one another and... and, and, and when you look at the teaching on spiritual warfare, generally speaking, it's unbalanced, it's extreme, either extreme in one direction, where the demons are everywhere, and everything's a devil, everything's a demon, whatever's negative is a demon, one extreme, to the other extreme, which is almost like there's no devil at all, there's no demonic power out there, and um, why, are we, why are we even bothering about it? The devil was defeated 2,000 years ago. Well, he was defeated 2,000 years ago, but he's doing a pretty good job at the moment, isn't he, with his kingdom of darkness? Let's, let's not be under any illusion. And that's what the devil likes to do. He likes to put us under illusions, likes to put us to sleep. I think you'll find over the coming weeks that uh, when I teach, I'll be teaching ab about the devil is, is a, a lot more subtle in the way that he works in this world and in the minds of people and the minds of, that, than, than we normally imagine. And it's his subtleties. It's the subtleties that, that, that caused Adam and Eve to fall in the garden. Those subtleties are at work today. And as we go through, the, this isn't someone was concerned that I was teaching on spiritual warfare and uh, wanted me to get prayer covering. But if I was going to get prayer covering, wouldn't I get prayer covering if I was teaching on the atonement more or the blood of Jesus? Or perhaps if I taught on the fruit of the Spirit or love, I would think I'd need more prayer covering for those things because those things are the most dangerous teachings to the enemy. Love, the fruit of the Spirit. These things are more... No, I'm not, I am no way worried that there's going to be any type of backlash uh, in teaching this. And that's part of the subtleties of, of the enemy. Um, 
and, uh, and I refuse them in the name of Jesus. For we're not ignorant of his schemes, as we'll, as we'll see. Now, when it says we're not ignorant of his, scheme, of, of, of his um, schemes, in um, 2 Corinthians 2.11, in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. In other words, if we are ignorant of his schemes, he's going to take advantage of us. But if we're not ignorant of his schemes, guess what? He's not going to be able to take advantage of, of us. If we understand that we wrestle not against flesh and blood and that we put on the armor of God, then he's not going to be able to penetrate and we'll be free to do battle with the sword of the Spirit. So I see the teaching on spiritual warfare very differently to what a lot of people out there are teaching and the charismatic church Sometimes they, 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 it sounds like they love the devil more than they love God because they've got this conference, that conference. Um, they're, they're trying to find out which buildings the devil's made and binding. And, and, and it's, like, it's not like that at all, my friends. Not like that at all. So today is really just a setting the scene because if we are engaged in spiritual warfare or any type of warfare, you've got to at least look out and say, well, where's the battleground? Where is this battlefield where spiritual warfare is engaged? So this is very much an introductory um, uh, uh, evening today. Now, we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 6 and uh, verse 10. But I'm not going to read. What I'm going to do is show you something that I think was... I remember watching it and thinking it was amazing. It's a reading. It's at a funeral. In fact, it was at the funeral of one of our greatest prime ministers of all time, Margaret Thatcher. Whether you like her or not is beside the point. She was a great woman and a great prime minister and a Christian. And at her funeral, she had already arranged a long time before what her funeral would be like and who would do what. And uh, the first reading would be by the prime minister, and that reading was the passage in John about, uh, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and no man comes to me except through the Father. And it, it was just amazing to see David Cameron reading those verses, no man comes to me. And, and not just reading it to a little group, but to an array of powerful, political, military leaders from all the way around the world. That was the first thing she put in. The second reading was by her granddaughter. And this reading is the passage that we're going to be starting with this evening. And I want you to, to see, I don't know how, much, how many crowd shots there are here, but this is at Margaret Thatcher's funeral, and some of the greatest and most powerful politicians of past and present were sitting in that building. She knew exactly what she was doing when she asked her granddaughter to give those world leaders this reading from the scripture. Thank you. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, 
against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. I don't know what you thought about that, but I thought that was quite poignant, really. And that, you know, Margaret Thatcher, a very powerful woman, one of the most powerful women in the history of the world, that she would choose that reading by a granddaughter at her funeral and to see all that political power sitting there. And it just makes, it just makes you wonder, doesn't it, how much of it just went right over their heads. And, of course... This passage in Ephesians sets the scene, really, for anything that we're talking about when we're talking about spiritual warfare. Ephesians is the great book of the church. It speaks about the ministries of apostles and prophets and teachers, and, 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 and it speaks about who you are in Christ and, and how God is immeasurably able to do more than we could possibly imagine, and the eyes of our hearts would be open to see these things. It's a powerful book, but it ends with this call to spiritual warfare and a reminder that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities. Now, these phrases in verse 12 are very important. They are authority words. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We are not engaged in warfare against other human beings. We are engaged in a warfare that is not natural, but it is supernatural. It's not fleshly. It's not physical. But it is spiritual. And it is against authorities and powers. You've got principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, spiritual hosts of wickedness, in heavenly places. Now, this word wrestle against flesh and blood is a very powerful word in the Greek. And Derek Prince talks about this word wrestle and says that it is the most intense form of combat. I mean, if you fire missiles at one another, it's not very personal, is it? Even if you fire a rifle at somebody across a valley and they're firing back at you in warfare, it's not very personal, is it? It's not... Even if you are fencing with swords, there's still a, a little bit of a difference. But if you are grappling, 
especially in the picture of Greco-Roman wrestling. That would be in his mind, this full body contact. I suppose the nearest thing we'd have today is the, is the UFC ultimate fighting that they have in those cage fighting things. That's the sort of picture that Paul had in his mind. And so in his mind, he definitely understands that we are in a warfare and that this warfare is personal, intense, and it's a clash of authorities and a clash of powers. We need armor in order to defend ourselves. We need a shield in order to extinguish fiery darts or arrows that the enemy will be firing at us. This is a warfare picture, isn't it? And the majority of, of, of what Paul is speaking about is armor. And we'll, we'll look at that sometime in the next two months. But we also realize that we do have a sword, don't we? It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And if you've got a sword, that means that you're not just on the defensive, but you have a weapon to go on the offensive. And we'll see that the Word of God in preaching, praying, prophesying, is our main form of attacking the kingdom of darkness. When uh, Jesus sent out his disciples, and they came back, and they were so glad, weren't they? Because they had seen people being healed. They'd seen people being saved. They'd seen people being delivered from demonic bondage. And they were happy. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. What he was talking about, he was referring to the first time that Satan fell from heaven when he was cast out of heaven, when he rebelled against God, trying to take God's position. But with the preaching and ministry of the gospel and the power evangelism that had just taken place, what Jesus was saying is, you're knocking him off his false throne again. So the preaching of the gospel, ministering the, the healing and delivering power of the Holy Spirit, is waging warfare. It's the main way we wage warfare and dislodge the powers of this age that, 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 that are, um, are demonic. We know that Jesus came to, to heal and to teach and to give us an example but you know, one of the most important scriptures is found in 1 John chapter 3. First epistle of John. As I said, I'm just slowly setting the scene today. That's a good thing about teaching services. You don't have to rush or cover too much too quickly. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So this reason, one of the main reasons that Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. And therefore, one of our callings in following his example is to destroy 
the work of the devil in this world and in people's lives. Now, what, what is the battleground that we face? Well, the first thing that we have to remind ourselves is that the, that the history of the world is a history that describes a battle between two kingdoms. On the one side, there is God and his forces, and on the other side, the devil and his forces, and they are not equal and matching by any means. But this is history. You know, people look at history, and they look at the rise and fall of empires, and, uh, and sometimes they think, well, you know, what's the gospel got to do with that? For many, many centuries, Israel was just a tiny, small nation, or a group of people. It, it, was, it was never one of the great empires. Well, it was after Solomon, but after Solomon, it, it wasn't really. It was split in two, and, and you think about the rise of the Persians, and the rise of the Greeks, and the rise of the Romans, and, and then you think that Israel almost was dissolved as a country and its people, and you sort of think, well, you know, there were big players going on in history. And, uh, but but not, not according to the Bible. According to the Bible, history is always about God and warfare with the enemy. That's the key to understanding history, is spiritual warfare. The key to understanding the world today is found through the lenses of spiritual warfare. And the key to understanding the future is also through the lenses of spiritual warfare. We know that whenever the end comes, that the the devil is going to unleash his greatest attack yet, isn't he? But at the same time, God is going to pour out his spirit like never before. And when all said and done, one of the great things that God will do is throw Satan and his kingdom into the lake of fire. So this warfare ends when Jesus returns. Uh, this warfare began in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? And so from the end of Revelation, nearly the, the last few verses are, all, are, are, are talking about the end of the devil, the destruction of the devil and everything he stood for. But we go to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, and we know there, there is a description of the struggle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. And Adam and Eve, they didn't wrestle against flesh and blood, did they? But in the Garden of Eden, they did wrestle, and they lost. They submitted. Who did they wrestle against? We know it was Satan in the form of a serpent, and uh, in this passage we read in Ephesians 6, it says that we should be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, in verse 11, or the schemes of the devil. It's one of the major things we have to expose and deal with, the wiles and the schemes and the activities of the enemy, because most people aren't even aware that they're taking place. He began like that in the garden, deceiving, lying, and right there at the end in the book of Revelation, when having been bound for a thousand years, he comes back and what does he do? He deceives a whole group of people. One final act of deception before he is thoroughly and forever defeated. 
We know that the enemy was involved, although not ultimately responsible, for the fall of Adam and Eve. Um, he was judged by the enemy, by God. God set in motion a spiritual warfare when Adam and Eve submitted to the wiles of the devil and fell, they were judged because it was their responsibility. And they had failed. And Adam blamed, the man blamed the woman, and the woman blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. And God judged them all, but he also judged the serpent, didn't he? He said that you will strike at the man's heel, but he will crush your head. So right there, God had released the tremendous sword of the Spirit right there at the beginning that was showing that one day Jesus Christ of Nazareth would come and that he would, according to Colossians, defeat all the forces of evil by his death on the cross and resurrection. So we find ourselves, the battleground is a fallen world. How many of you know this world is not as God created it. It is a faint shadow of how God created this world perfect in all things. When God created the world before the deception of Adam and Eve and, uh, and their fall and submission to the enemy, everything was perfect. There was no death. There was no sickness. There was no sin. God saw everything and said it was good. And when he looked at Adam and Eve, he said it was very good. Everything was wonderful. But when Adam and Eve listened to the serpent, not only were they plunged into death and judgment, but the whole of the created order fell with them. You couldn't have a fallen human race looking after a perfect universe it would be thoroughly inappropriate because human beings were meant to rule the universe or rule the world on behalf of God. So when they fell, it had shudders were sent right through the universe. And that's why, although we know that even in this fallen world and fallen creation, there's still such incredible beauty, isn't there? The signature of God is everywhere the reflections of a good God, a great God. There's nothing more beautiful than the beauty of nature, but also there's nothing more shocking than the horrors of nature when a little dormouse eats her, all her own little kids. I remember when I was uh, uh, at school, as a primary, in the primary school, one of the most traumatic things that we all went through, this little primary school in the Yorkshire Dales, is we had gerbils, and the gerbils had babies. And uh, we all saw these little babies, these little babies, they were there. And we went home looking at all the babies, thinking it was wonderful. The next morning, there were none there. Because the mother or father, I can't remember now, it, it, it's too traumatic to think of, I, <laughs> I get, had eaten the babies. Well, can you imagine five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven-year-olds? The horror of a fallen world, you know, you know what I'm saying? We think of sickness, we think, we think of suffering, we think of warfare. We think of sin, all these things. The world is not as it should be. But do you know God sent his son in a divine invasion to destroy the works of the devil, to bring the kingdom of God 
to begin a reversal of what took place. And that reversal starts with the salvation of our souls. And this is going to culminate, of course, in the return of the King and Kings and the Lord of Lords when he comes on a white horse with his army of angels. So right through the Bible, what I'm trying to say in introduction, from the beginning right to the end is this note of spiritual warfare. Now, I don't want to make spiritual warfare everything, but neither do I want it to be nothing. And seeing as this is a spiritual warfare two-month series, that's how we're going to look at what's going on through that lens. Now, when a nation goes to war against a nation, there's usually a main objective. There's a reason for a battle. There's a reason for fighting. There's a reason for warfare. It's not warfare for warfare's sake. So in this great battle between God and Satan, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, what is the warfare all about? Well, the first thing we need to recognize and we will highlight again and again is that the devil is out to destroy God's work. That's what he's out to do. And the primary reason that the universe was created and the primary reason that God created man in his own image is that God would be glorified. Now, tonight at the 7 o'clock service, we're going to be ministering in the gifts of the Spirit, but also I'm going to be speaking about the prayer of Jesus for us, his church, in John 17. And when we look at John 17, we'll, we'll find some keynotes. And these are the things that Jesus prayed then, and these are the things that Jesus is even praying now before the Father. And one of the keynotes of that prayer is glory. I glorified you, Father, with the glory that you gave me. Lord, let them glorify our name together. I've given them your name. I've given them your word. And so there's this keynote of glory. Now, when we talk about glory, we're talking about two things. Sometimes people talk about glory, and they're sort of like, what is it? Is it an experience? What is the glory of God? It's two things. The first thing is reputation. You can think of it as two R's, reputation. The glory of God is his reputation. It's his renown. It's his name. It's who he is and what he's done. And so the glory of God is his goodness, his greatness, his majesty. It's describing who he is, his attributes and characteristics all point to the glory of God, but also what he's done. Testimony, in other words. The Bible is really a book of testimony, isn't it? A testimony of what God has done through, the, through history. And we look at his mighty deeds and his mighty acts, and, and, and we say, wow, look at what God did. And we say, God do it again. And so his reputation, his character, his activities, all these things bring him glory. It's like when you think in the world today, you think of great athletes or great politicians or great historical figures, and, and, and their glory is their reputation, isn't it? It's what they've actually done on the earth. It's it's how many goals they've scored, or it's how many battles they won, or it's how many poor children Mother Teresa looked after in India. And her acts speak of her, if I can use the phrase, glory. Or others, their integrity, 
people who have acted in integrity and in great love, and, and, and you say, and you, you look at their nature. And, and, and that, so this is the first thing, God's reputation through his attributes, who he is, and his actions. This is very important to spiritual warfare, as I'll show you in a minute. The second R is radiance. Radiance. So the second aspect of God's glory is his divine radiance. It's his glorious presence. It's his outshining. When Moses said, Lord, show me your glory, he didn't tell him all about who he was, but he said, hide here in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by you. It was his presence. Although he was at the same time saying, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and compassionate. So he was also describing his nature. We know that when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, he was glorified before them, wasn't he? He became blazing, shining presence. So the other aspect of glory, we have reputation and radiance, presence, his cloud, his fire, his turning up. These are the two aspects. Now, this, I, I, I mentioned these things because everything in the universe was created to bring glory to God. In other words, to speak of his character to speak of his power, to speak of his greatness. Just like when you go into an art gallery and you see some beautiful artwork, you want to know who the painter was, don't you, or the sculptor. Because you think, wow, that sculptor, that artist has produced something so, so beautiful. So the whole of the universe is, is God's artistic masterpiece, although it has been marred and defaced by human sin. And so the devil is out to attack God's reputation. We exist to give glory to God. It's not all about us. It's all about him. In fact, unless we realize that everything is about the glory of God, and that we exist to glorify him, to be an expression of him, then we will never find rest or peace or meaning in this earth because we were created for God. The Westminster Catechism, which in the 1600s was written for new believers, and the way that it trained new believers was by asking them a series of questions. They learnt the questions, they learnt the answers. And what was the first question that they were asked? The first question that they were asked and that they memorised was this. What is the chief end of mankind, or what is the chief purpose of human beings? And their answer was this, and, and you, you, you couldn't get a better summary. What is the chief purpose of human beings? Question. Answer. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. I love the bit of the enjoyment that they put in. Sometimes Puritans are look, looked at as a bit cold, but that enjoy him forever. Achieve it. Glorify? Well, I've already told you what that is, isn't it? To glorify it is to, is to manifest God on earth by our actions, our deeds, our, our character, our integrity, through preaching the gospel, through our lives and deeds to glorify God. But secondly, also to be bringers of his presence. And so when we speak about spiritual warfare, sometimes people think, oh, the devil's doing this and the devil's doing that and I'm warring against the devil and the devil's attacking me. And, and sometimes, I suppose it's a little bit like if you're on the front line, if you're a front line soldier and you're fighting, often during that battle, all you're aware of is that little piece of the battle that you're in. 
The four or five people on the hedgerow are shooting at you and you're lobbing grenades at them. And, and, and really, that's taken your whole attention. What are you doing? I don't know. I've just got to clear this, this hedgerow of the enemy. I've just got to defeat the enemy that's, that's right in front of me. You don't know that there's hundreds and thousands of other people that are in combat at the same time. And, and so you, some, sometimes in, in war, sometimes you hear the soldiers and they're saying, I don't even know what this war is about. All I know is I'm here and I'm fighting an enemy. I'm just trying to, trying to live another day. And so in our lives where the enemy attacks us or where we see the devil at work here or there in individuals, communities or families as well as nations, sometimes we can be dazzled by the battle and not realize what is the bigger purpose. Because this is global warfare that began in Genesis and will end in Revelation. It's historic. It's the main narrative of history and it is, it is the, the, the main forces that are, at, are, that are being released today is the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. That's why it's fascinating to hear that, that reading earlier on in the serv- service. Because I would imagine, as you would, that most of those people sitting in that cathedral don't have a Christian faith or a Christian worldview. And I think that very few of them would have actually believed one word of what was being read from Ephesians chapter 6. That they, that was act, because I think they read, no, no, power is in politics, power is in economics, power is in uh, military warfare, power is in intelligence and argument on the debating floor, power is in your legal system. And I'm not saying there's not powers in those, But Paul didn't speak about those things. He spoke about powers that were even greater than those. He spoke about spiritual authorities. He didn't even speak about political authorities. He didn't mention Rome once in that passage, did he? He didn't mention Caesar Augustus or anybody once in that passage. No, he was speaking about powers and authorities that would use those earthly manifestations of power as they will. And so we need to realize that behind the scenes, there are massive forces at work. And so when we talk about the glory of God, this is the main warfare objective in Satan's mind. To attack the glory of God. To bring confusion and chaos and trouble in his work. He wants God to be forgotten. He wants God to be lampooned, laughed at. He wants to show an array of other gods that people will worship instead of the true and living God. The devil is the author, the author of all false religions and idolatry. This nonsense that God is behind all religions, it's nonsense according to the Bible. This idea that God God is in all religions, we just have to find him. Well, it's funny how the major religions in their teaching are the direct opposite of one another in their own teachings. But but, no, this this is the enemy's plan. He wants to divert attention. He wants people to worship a God that is not a God. That's why the Old Testament is full, isn't it, of the problems of idolatry. What's that? It's spiritual warfare. 
It's spiritual warfare. All those things about the idols and the Israelites turning to idols and Isaiah prophesying against idols. We can look back on that and we can mistakenly think, oh, well, you know, in the old days they had lots of idols and they used to worship Baal and, and that was the old times. We, we, it, it's no different than today. And sometimes people still worship wooden idols and sometimes it's pop idols, isn't it? Oh, the devil will make an idol in any way, shape, or form that you will worship. If you won't worship this idol, he'll find another one that you will worship. This is spiritual warfare. This wasn't just some, like, primitive religion. This was the devil at war to prevent God being glorified on the earth. That's why he hates the gospel. That's why Christians are being slain left, right, and center in the Middle East and North Africa, not just a bunch of ideological terrorists who are going around killing people. That's part of it. There's a human element, of course there is. But behind that, the devil is at work. The devil is at work. One of the greatest achievements of the devil is to get to people, get people to not even believe that he exists. To even, to even say there's no such thing as sin, the devil, and evil. Well, just have a look what's going out in the world. And I think uh, the facts prove that there is evil out there and it's not just human beings. So that, this is what he's trying to do. And um, 1 Peter 5.8 says that he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Let's just, just go there. And you know, don't, don't worry about the things that I'm saying. Because what we're doing, what we're doing here, we're going to expose the devil. We're going to expose the devil because Jesus gave us all the authority and power to tread on scorpions and snakes and over some of the power of the enemy. No, you know, it's all the power of the enemy. We've got power to tread on all the power of the enemy in order to do what God has called us to do. It's not 50% victory or 80% victory, but there is potential of the Christian walking in 100% victory. I've, I have, I'm saying to my father, all authority has been given to me. You go, and I'm giving you authority to trample on scorpions and snakes and over all the power of the enemy. But the thing is, if you don't know how the enemy is fighting, then how can you deal with him? If you're, if, you're, if you're sending your troops on the mountain and the enemy's in the valley, it's a waste of time. It's like a, a parallel. It's like the book of James. It speaks about if anybody asks for wisdom, God will give it to them. But then, well, what wisdom are you looking for? Because later on, it speaks about two types of wisdom, doesn't it? We'll look at this later in the two months. There is the wisdom from above, which is peaceable, Loving, caring, basically it's the fruit of the Spirit. There's the wisdom, but there's the wisdom from below, which is earthly, sensual, demonic. Now, if you don't know that God's wisdom is based on the principle of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, faithfulness, kindness, patience... If you don't know that those are the keys of the wisdom of God, and you're asking God for wisdom, and you're saying, God, give me wisdom to destroy my, my business opponent. 
Give me wisdom to put my wife in order. Give me wisdom. And you're thinking in the wrong terms, are you going to walk in godly wisdom? No, you're not, are you? So in the same way, when we're speaking about spiritual warfare, if you don't know where the battle is, if you don't know how the battle's fought, if you don't know how the enemy is going to um, come against you, then you're going to be in confusion. But if you understand the principles of spiritual warfare, you're not going to be in confusion. You're going to know exactly what's taking place. I find in my own personal testimony of spiritual warfare over the 25 years that I've been here at Kensington Temple, that most of the time when the devil has got some sort of hold on me or is beating me down, normally I'm confused, I'm dazed, I'm unaware of what's going on, or or an element of deception has got into my thinking that I'm not even aware of. Deception. You see what I'm saying? And if you're confused, dazed, bewildered, it's a sure sign that the enemy is at work. This is what he seeks to do. And um, well, I'll leave the Peter passage. We'll come back to that. This is what he seeks to do. This is what he did in the Garden of Eden. There they were. They were clear as day. They knew God. They knew their purpose. They were clear. And then the devil comes in, starts throwing doubts, starts bringing a mist into their clear vision of God, begins to muddle them, begins to confuse them. Did God say? What do you mean, did God say? Did God say if you ate of that fruit, you would die? Well, yeah, yeah, of course he did. Did he? Confusion, muddling, doubt. And then, he, you will not die. A blatant lie against the character of God. God doesn't want you to eat that fruit because he's holding back from you. They were deceived. Now, we know that um, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, and I think I'll end on this. There's plenty more I could say in introduction, but I'll come back to this next week. I just want you to get a feel of where we're going, because where we're going may be a very different journey than you might have expected on a spiritual warfare journey. But the journey is to victory. I'm convinced of that. Um, Ephesians chapter 2. Again, the same book that we heard the reading from earlier. Where's my Ephesians guy? Ephesians chapter 2. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now listen. In which you once walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as he, he, he was. So here we can see that there is a course of this world, verse 2. In other words, there is, a, there is a world mindset. There is a fallen way of dealing with things. And we once, before we were saved, were totally part of that 
worldly mindsets. But behind that worldly mindset, who was pulling the strings? We see here, it was a spirit. It was Satan himself working in the sons of disobedience. The di Listen to me very careful because if you take this away, you'll be set for the next sessions. The devil, a personal, supernatural, fallen angel being. The devil controls this world's mind and this world's outlook. It's not just a fallen humanity or people naturally erring because they were born with a, 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 a hereditary spiritual disease called sin that causes them to, of themselves, veer away from God, not to him. No, there is an enemy behind it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, we see this echoed. It's, it's a very powerful statement. You know, we're not those that rail against the devil and shout against the devil and shake our fists against the devil. We don't like the devil, we hate the devil. He's the only person we're allowed to hate. We hate him, he hates us. But at the same time, we, we don't play games. This is warfare. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, let's go to verse 3, actually. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the glory, the gospel of glory, there's that word glory, who is in the image of God, Christ, should shine upon them. So here's another picture of this attempt by the enemy to control people's minds. He tried to control their minds and he did successfully in the Garden of Eden, didn't he? At the end of the book of Revelations, in his last onslaught, he tries to control people's minds again through deceit. The devil's a liar from the beginning. And here we find that he has, he has a blinding, confusing, modeling, deceiving, misting effect on the world's minds. It's a demonic effect. And the real battlefield, the real battlefield, the most important battlefield is the battlefield of the mind. If you conquer the battlefield of the mind by the Spirit of God and the Word of God, and we'll look at the weapons of our warfare, if you can conquer or begin to conquer the battlefield of the mind, then you will be victorious and you will achieve everything that God has called you to be. If you can keep your mind or get your mind to higher states of renewal, clarity. And also when, we, when we're praying for people to get saved, we need to pray and cast out this blinding effect of Satan. But as I come to a close, let me just pause on that for a moment. Don't assume that your mind is free and clear from demonic interference. Don't assume it. Because if you do assume it, then you're in a dangerous position. If you don't assume it, 
you are increasingly in a strong position to go forward. Because this misting, this clouding power of the enemy that's in the world also seeks to come into the church. We see in the reading we had earlier that it said, lift up the uh, shield of faith that quenches the fiery darts of the enemy. The word isn't darts like, you know, dartboard. It's referring to arrows or spears. And so this means that the devil can attack us. And how does he attack us? He attacks us through fiery darts to penetrate the mind, to try and get a stronghold in our mindset, to try and utilize sinful thoughts or sinful tendencies and to build a stronghold. Remember, the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly or carnal, but mighty for the what? Pulling down of strongholds. And the strongholds we are that, that, we are, that Paul is talking about, as we will see, that the, re, the real central stronghold is of the mind. Of the mind. The more victory we have in our minds, the more victory we will have in, in our lives. The more freedom we have in our minds, the more renewed our minds are, the more spirit-filled our mind, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The more orientated to God's word we, we are, the freer we will become. And the first step is to be conscious and aware that there will be some mists of the enemy that are still operating in our mind. And that way, we can go to the sword of the spirit, and we can fight the good fight, and we begin to get 20-20 vision. R.T. said that uh, in, in the end times, there would be a great awakening of the church. Do you remember that? And he spoke about the, the ten virgins and, and those that were asleep and those that were awake. Well, and, and that he believed that the, that the church in the West was asleep and that the church in the West was dreaming and, and, and living in fantasy. And, didn't, and you only know you're awake the moment you were awake. And you do things in your dreams you would never do when you're awake. And so he was speaking about a sleepiness, a slumber, slumbering. Well, we, we could say that that sleepiness, that slumbering, when we're talking about spiritual warfare, that that is the misting and direct action of the enemy trying to blind the church. Well, we have begun a journey of exposing the enemy so that we can live in victory. And this is a journey. If you know anybody that's struggling in their mind, especially those that are struggling from depression or defeat, defeatism or discouragement, um, I know there can be sometimes medical elements to that, but, 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 but often a lot of that is the work of the enemy. And truth brings light and light brings freedom. And there may be some people you know that need to be here, need to watch this next week on the internet, and then join us for this journey of, of exposing the enemy in order to have personal liberation and freedom so that we can receive and enjoy the joy that God said we would have abundantly and, uh, and have God's victory in our lives on earth through a life of spiritual warfare. God bless you.